0: Good Enough listeners, I'm Andrea Burke, your local Good Enough podcast host, and I'm so excited to welcome you to season three of Good Enough. Psalm 9012 says, so teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. The topics surrounding death and grief, while they may be heavy and somber, are really important conversations we need to be having as believers. And so my hope in this season of Good Enough is to help you and really me number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. You'll hear stories from people who have faced tragic loss, suffering, unimaginable pain, grief, and they were willing to sit down with me to talk about what these experiences looked like for them and how the grace of God and the goodness of Jesus met them in their pain, in their ministry, in their work, and in their stories. This season, you'll hear from widows parents who have lost children, those facing a terminal illness, pastors, doctors, a hospice nurse, and more. I really hope you'll join me for this season as we peel back the layers on the reality that we all face. Mortality is a part of our life. So let's sit together and ask God to teach us to number our days so that we can gain some wisdom. This is season three of Good Enough. Hey everybody, welcome to today's episode of Good Enough. Today my guest is Nancy Guthrie. Nancy teaches the Bible at her home church, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, as well as at conferences around the country and internationally, including her Biblical Theology Workshops for Women, which, FYI, if you're local in Rochester, she will be here in September 2021. Nancy is the author of numerous books, including her most recent, I'm Praying for You. She is also the host of the Help Me Teach the Bible podcast at the Gospel Coalition. And she and her husband host respite retreats for couples who have faced the death of a child and they're co-hosts of the Grief Share video series. So Nancy, I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast today, and I'm hoping that you would take the time now to go ahead and tell us your story
1: thank you for having me andrea and for asking me about this experience in my life that as you can guess was very significant Uh, my husband david and i live in nashville and we have a son matt who's 30. Uh, when matt was about eight years old i gave birth to a daughter named hope and when hope was born it was immediately noticeable that she had club feet But the OBGYN said, well, you know, don't worry about that. We can put casts on her feet uh, very quickly. But he said, you know, I think you're going to want to have the pediatrician take a good look at her when he gets here. And the pediatrician did that. And he came into our hospital room that night and he had a little piece of paper in his hand on which he had made a list of what he called a number of little things that weren't quite right with hope. Uh, besides the club feet, she was she was underweight, she wasn't holding her temperature, um, her hands turned slightly out, she had a little dot on her ear, uh, she had a really large soft spot and extra skin on her neck, and he recognized that those are indicators of a number of genetic anomalies. So he said, I'm gonna have a geneticist from Vanderbilt Hospital come over tomorrow and examine her. So that night, that doctor and another doctor came to our room and they told us that they suspected Hope had a rare metabolic disorder called Zellweger syndrome, which we had never heard of. Probably most of your listeners have never heard of that. It's 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 a called a peroxisomal disorder. What it means is that Hope was missing a tiny subcellular enzyme that you and I have in every one of our cells. And these they're called peroxisomes. And peroxisomes, their job is to rid our cells of long chain fatty acids. And so basically, in Hope's body, where the peroxisomes were supposed to be, it was empty. And that meant, and paroxysomes are kind of like the, the cell's trash man. And so because they were empty, it's like there's nobody to take out the trash. And because of that, these long chain fatty acids would build up in all of her cells and become toxic. And so the doctor told us that night that there was no treatment and no cure, and that most children with this syndrome live less than six months. He told us that a lot of damage had already been done to all of her major organs, including her liver and her kidneys and her brain. And uh, then they left the room. (laughs) And I remember my husband, David, crawled up in the bed with me and we cried and we prayed probably the most unceremonious prayer we'd ever prayed, which was just, God help us. We don't know what to do. Um, we spent about a week there. I, I'm not sure she really needed it. They were continuing to do tests to confirm the diagnosis. I think it was, might have been more kindness to us as we were learning how to care for her. She couldn't suck or swallow, and so we had to feed her with a tube. And, and we're just reckoning with this reality mm-hmm. that instead of taking hope home to live with us and to raise and to be my friend in my old age (laughs) Uh, we were taking hope home to die Uh, we we did take her home and you know Andrea it's, um, it's a little bit challenging to describe that time adequately because it was intense certainly because we had never lived before where we literally didn't know day by day if that would be her last and so there's an intensity to that and i know for me as a mom there was a reality to that i was i think it was like two weeks in and um somehow it just hit me it was like okay hope hope's not going to be with us long and so that means the day is coming and very soon that either I am, she's going to die in my arms or I'm going to find her dead in her crib. And like, that was pretty overwhelming to me. That reality, I'd never been around a dead body. And I wondered, will that be my only memory of her? Those days were also very rich because there was something very special About this child who was so weak, but forced everyone around us to think more deeply about God's purposes in our lives, about his sovereignty over our lives, about prayer, about miracles, about purpose in suffering and... You know, at that time, we were in this church that has a lot of wealthy, powerful people. And here was this problem nobody could solve and nobody could pray away. And just reckoning with this reality, okay, she's going to die. Uh, I, I remember the, the secretary at our church called me one day and she said, just want you to know that we we have you guys on the prayer list and we're asking people to pray for a miracle, to heal hope. And we said, well, okay, that's not how we're praying. Mm. But pretty much that's most for many Christians, that's the breadth of our vocabulary for prayer in the midst of suffering. We only know how to pray it away. Mm And I also think we are a little bit um, confused about some things. So, for example, uh, you know, when you looked at Hope, in many ways, she looked very normal. So it was hard to imagine that something, at least at first, was so wrong with her. Um, But I would try to explain to people, Hope is not sick. She's missing something that she needs for life that cannot be generated, right? And uh, so, you know, and and I think about the, the difference, like if it's another genetic thing, if it's a child who's born with Down syndrome, something we're a little more familiar with, we don't generally, even in the church, pray that God is somehow gonna take away that extra chromosome. Right. Right, we recognize this is something that's written into every cell of their bodies. Or if a child is born without a limb, we don't generally pray for ask God to do a miracle to grow another limb, right? right? There's certain things we we recognize, and I know some people are thinking as I say that, oh, I'm limiting God. He's so powerful. He could listen. I tell you, I am not limiting God. What we were seeking to do was submit to mm-hmm. God. It, it seemed to us that He had already made a decision mm-hmm. about the length of Hope's life and the quality of Hope's life, just as I think he's made a decision about the length of my life and the quality of my life. And Mm -hmm. so we just felt like rather than throw ourselves and try to get everyone around us, throwing themselves into pressuring God to do something different and do a miracle, we felt like we have to throw ourselves into accepting what God has given to us and its limitations. Um, I remember one day, though, I I took Hope up to what was supposed to be her room and I was rocking her and I'm thinking to myself, "Okay, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God, Okay, we accept that she's not going to live very long, but would you just extend her life as long as possible? Mm -hmm. I thought that was being pretty generous to God, actually. Uh, like, but as the prayers for me, I just stopped for a minute and I just thought, well, but what if a longer life isn't better for her or isn't better for me? Am I willing to just accept the number of days that God gives to me with hope? And so that became my prayer Give me the grace. To accept, to enjoy, to make the most of every day that you give us with her. And he gave us 199 days. Um, and uh, David got up into the middle of the night to check on her in the bassinet beside our bed, and she was cold uh-huh. to the touch. And so we knew she was gone. And you know, Andrea. I I think I thought, I'm like a real planner. I plan ahead mm-hmm. for everything, you know, and I want to get jump on ahead on things. And I think I expected, okay, I know she's going to die. Mm-hmm. And I'm dealing with so much sadness about that during her life. That somehow, you know, this grieving thing after she dies, it's, I'm like taking the edge off that. And yeah. it's going to be somehow be easier for me. Right, because I've gotten a head start on it somehow. Well, it doesn't work that way. Ugh. There's, and, and I know if you have some some mm. of your listeners, they know exactly what I'm saying when I say there is a big difference between waiting for someone to die, expecting that they're going to die, and them being gone. Gone. It's this creates this huge aching emptiness and you know everybody comes around you for the funeral and they're so great and people were so great to us we had the most beautiful celebration of Hope's life and her impact uh, and then it got so quiet so quiet you know we were just like wow did that really happen I mean, those six months of our lives and you know now what am I going to do with myself and who are we going to be and all of those questions yeah and the only way I know how to explain it Andrea is just grief settled in like on a like heaviness mm-hmm. uh, it, it it was it, I, I often explain it this way it all, I always felt like there was a boulder on my chest and like it was pressing the life out of me. And it always just, it felt, there is a literal heaviness Mm. to grief that just like weighs on a person and the only way I know how to explain it was that I was sad, just really, really sad. I I remember going to this church choir retreat about three months into after Hope had died and I stood up and I said to everybody, I'm not depressed. And I'm not losing my faith. I'm just sad. And I really need what I need from you is to give me time and space to just be sad. And I'm grateful that they did that.
0: No, that that's not the end of your story. Right? Right. Yeah. So to have a child with this syndrome means
1: that both david and i must be carriers of the recessive gene trait for the syndrome like do you remember back to high school that one week in biology you studied (laughs) genetics right and so you remember you were taught what it takes to have a child with blue eyes that you know both parents have to carry that recessive gene trait and then the child has a 25 percent chance of having those blue eyes well it's the same with this syndrome so of course when we had our son Matt. We didn't know when we had hope, we didn't know that yeah. we both carried this, but then after we had hope, we knew. Hmm. And so that meant we had a really difficult decision to make about whether or not we would have more children. Hmm. Um, and it may seem really easy or simple to some people. It didn't seem that way to us. Yeah. Um, in many ways, our family didn't feel complete. And we loved hope. And we enjoyed Hope. And we didn't think it would be the worst thing in the world to take a chance and have another child with that syndrome. Mm -hmm. But also, our lives weren't just us. Mm. Um, There was our church family, and, you know, Hope was such an event. (laughs) And there was our son. He was eight when Hope was born and lived in the house for six months waiting for his sibling to die. And then in a house a lot longer with a really sad mom. Mm. which I promise you could not have been much fun. Wow. And um, and then there's also our parents. Mm. And Hope's death was devastating to our parents. You know, as hard as it is to lose a child, I think it's doubly difficult for uh, a parent to watch their child lose a child and not be able to fix it. So we determined... That the wisest thing for us to do would be to take surgical steps to prevent another pregnancy, which is what we did. And evidently it didn't work. And about a year and a half after Hope died, I discovered I was pregnant. Which you can just only imagine how hard my heart was beating that day when I took that pregnancy test. I was just, oh, wow. I drove down to David's office and I walked to his office and I told him, We both sat there shaking our heads like, how did this happen? Of course we do know the basics just (laughs) so you know. (laughs) Uh, And and that day I, I called the geneticist who had diagnosed Hope because he had said to us now, don't take any permanent birth control steps because we can test very early. Okay. And you understand what he's saying?
0: Yeah, yes. To eliminate, was he referencing that you should eliminate the pregnancy? Could then terminate, right? Okay, yeah. yeah.
1: So I called him because I I felt at this point, point, um I, I, and I said to him, I said, well, we're going to continue the pregnancy either way, but we feel like it's going to be really helpful to know which direction mm-hmm. we're heading. Yeah. Especially before we share this news with our parents. Yeah. And with our son. So... I'm sure they could do it faster now. But then, you know, well, I I had to wait till I was at least eight weeks pregnant and then I had to wait another three weeks for the results. And then he called one day and said um, that we were going to have a son this time and that he would also have that fatal syndrome. So it was it was it was different that time to spend the whole pregnancy knowing we were going to have a child who would just be with us a short time. Mm -hmm. Um, And when he came, he was very much like Hope. uh, Both of them developed seizures at about three months old and we had to medicate them heavily for that. And he lived about the same amount of time as Hope did. She had lived 199 days and he lived 183. Mm Probably a a sweet thing about it was, you know, with Hope, we were just like, we don't, we just had such an on-ramp to figure out how to care for her Mm -hmm. when she was constantly deteriorating, you know, this thing we'd never heard of before. And with Gabe, we kind of knew what we were in for and we Mm -hmm. had that. That was helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, We were able, with Hope, so much of the grief was disappointment. Mm -hmm. Just so much disappointed i'd looked forward to having a daughter and i had plans you know and with gabe i think you know we just looked toward his life with a recognition of what it was going to be and there was not that huge fall off of disappointment he's he's what we expected then you Mm -hmm. know and we were able to just enjoy him and share him and that was an incredible gift uh but then you know that day came, middle of the night, once again, mm-hmm. uh, we we sensed with Gabe, you know, with Hope, I didn't have any idea the night before. Mm. And I have had to deal with some real regrets about that night before. With Gabe, we kind of sensed, this looks familiar, he's fading. And uh so, you know, we put him in the bed with us and I pulled out um, my Bible and I opened up to Revelation 15. Mm-hmm. And I said, Gabe, do you want to hear about the resurrection?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because in that moment of life, that's what matters most. You know, uh, I've written about hope, both the person and the biblical concept a lot. When I gave her that name, I I don't think I had a very broad sense of understanding of what the word is, mm. but I kind of got forced to figure out what hope really is, especially when, from the world's view, it looks hopeless. Right. Yeah. And what I see in the scriptures is that hope is always centered in resurrection. Hmm. Hope mm-hmm. is always centered in resurrection. Think about Peter. You're born again to a living mm-hmm. hope. Mm-hmm. Um, we hope in what we haven't seen, you know, just over and over again. Um, if you look up hope in the Bible, you discover mm-hmm. it's centered on resurrection. And it is not just letting that be some theological concept, But like taking hold of it and chewing on it and staking everything on it Mm -hmm. is at the center of having hope, I think, in the midst of death.
0: Thank you for sharing that so vulnerably with me. Um, I'm crying and no one can see it, but these just wrecked me because um, I'm, I marvel at God's grace for you to be even able to tell the story. Like I think about being a mom and, and you know, that normal parent, you always want to check on your kid and check on them and make sure they're okay. And I cannot fathom knowing that one of those nights you're going to, like you, like you said, you know, that it's going to happen. I cannot, my brain cannot wrap around that. And, um, Well, here's the
1: thing about that. You know, like uh, people would constantly say to us at that time, they'd go, I don't know how you're doing this. You know, I could never do this. And David and I used to like to have a little fun with them. We would say, we'd say back to them, you know, you're right. You never could. (laughs) But then we would follow that up with saying, and the reason is God hasn't asked you to do it. Uh, But look at our lives and see this. That he has given us the grace yes. to endure what he has entrusted to us. Mm-hmm. And the reason you think I could never do that mm-hmm. is because he hasn't given you the grace for it. Yes. Because you don't need it, yeah. at least not now. But, you know, I, I it, it was actually, I felt like, I still feel like, you know, a beautiful opportunity to put on display mm-hmm. When he says, My grace is sufficient, my power is made perfect in weakness. Mm-hmm. You know, we can read that and think we kind of get it, but it's a real whole other thing to experience it. Yeah. And just be able to say, Okay, Jesus, you've been enough for me. Mm-hmm. And the grace that you provided to us, he gives us the grace we need in the form and in the timing, and in the quantity mm. in which we need it. That's what it means, mm. that word, sufficient, enough. Um, and, mm. and we experienced that. And so, yeah, I, I know some people look at our lives and they think, oh man, yeah, I could never do that. And my word is always, well, just be sure that he will give you the grace mm. for whatever you need to face what he allows into your life. Mm
0: -hmm. That's our hope as a believer. Um, A question I have is I think about some of people I know who've lost children either before birth, like a miscarriage or stillborn or shortly after. And for women, especially dealing with postpartum hormones and all of those feelings and your body working through things. And was that difficult for you? Cause then you still had to deal with like the natural your body's trying to heal after all of this time. Plus the, the emotional and physical pain of your child suffering and your, I mean, yeah. was that something that you had to work through? You know, with
1: hope, I, um, I wanted to breastfeed her. I wanted to do everything, you know, I could. So, you know, here I was pumping and storing and because we had to feed it through a tube you know all of that I did that for quite a while then I then I then it dawned on me as I read some things it was like breastfeeding children has a lot to do with their later development Mm. not actually right then and so at some point I let that go but see there was just a series of letting go every Every letting go like that uh, felt like a surrender to reality. You know, like I mentioned, she had club feet. So we didn't have the Zellweger diagnosis that second day. And so before the geneticist came and talked to us, the orthopedist came and put casts on her feet. Mm. And about two weeks in, two or three weeks in, I looked and her feet were turning blue. And I called him and I took him in to change the casts, you know, to make them bigger, whatever. And I remember she's on the table and he looks at me and he just says, you know, are you sure you really want to put casts on her feet? Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, that just as a mom, it felt like I'm giving up, you know, it wasn't that, but that's how it felt, you know? And let me just say, you know, someone who's listening, grief and facing things like this is a constant battle with how things feel and to be, to, to tell yourself the truth when all of your emotions and thoughts are telling you something different and you just have to like pull those out and look them in the guy, is this true? Mm. Is this true? I sure feel this way. Is it true? And you just keep saying, you just no, that's not true. That's not what's happening here, but it, it takes a real decision of the will to do it. Um, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I, I don't think I've been a person prone to postnatal depression in terms of my body. I just remember, I remember short time after Hope died being up at my church at a women's event and this friend of mine was walking to me the car and I just looked at her and I just said, <laughs> this is what I said. I said, mm-hmm. you know, it sure sucks to have all of this baby weight and no baby. Yep. Yeah.
0: Um, I think about what you're saying, um, with people praying for a miracle and, um, maybe this can help tie into this next section a little bit and how people responded to your grief, you know, well-meaning trying to do what they thought was best and what you wanted. Um, and how I even think about how in my own suffering in life, how I pray for it to go away. Cause I don't want to have to face the pain of what God is asking me to walk through. Um, and it feels like good faith to ask him to take it away when in, in reality, it's more, I, 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 for me has been out of fear. Cause I just am afraid to face what I have to face. Um, and so I imagine even, I would think for people praying for miracles, cause they don't know, like you said, they don't know how to face your suffering, hope suffering, um, mm-hmm. maybe even suffering that they've avoided in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I know you wrote the book, um, what grieving people Wish you knew, and as I told Nancy this before we started recording, for our church staff at Grace Road Church, we we went through that book as a staff to basically be like, what are we doing wrong? (laughs) Because we know we were handling this wrong in different places, and we want to love people well. That book is tremendously helpful, and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, I'll put all of your books in there as well. But um, I just I would love to hear anything like you would say to people who want to care for someone who's walking with any suffering. Um, some thoughts you have about how to love people well yeah. there.
1: Well, let me speak first to the, the prayer because uh, during the pandemic, one thing I've done is I wrote a little book that will actually come out in April mm-hmm. called I'm praying for you. Mm-hmm. 40 days of praying the scriptures for someone who is suffering. Ooh. Because as I said earlier, we have a very limited vocabulary. Mm-hmm. We pretty much only know how to pray suffering away. And so my premise is that the scriptures over and over again show us uh, God's good purposes, what he's intending to do in the lives of his people, for which he often uses suffering to accomplish those purposes, uniquely uses suffering to accomplish those purposes. And so since the scriptures tell us these things over and over again, in fact, I think it's fascinating that sometimes they actually read, this happened so that... Oh. Which is like, it, you're saying, why did it happen? It's like, I'm going to tell you why it happened. This mm-hmm. happened so yeah. that you might be perfect immature. Yeah. This happened to put the glory of God on display, you know, uh, the, numerous times. So my whole premise is if the scriptures is given these things and says, these are some of the purposes that God has in our suffering. Well, then let's pray and ask him to accomplish those purposes. Yes. And not limit only our prayers to take it away, heal restore all, all those things and there's nothing wrong with asking those things but let's let's develop a habit of prayer yes, even in praying for a suffering person to pray for those kinds of things mm-hmm. for God to accomplish his purposes. Now I, I, I acknowledged in the front that for many people those prayers are going to seem like too small, maybe mm-hmm. even uncaring, uh, especially if the person you're praying for is focused you know solely, healing miracle Mm. restoration Mm -hmm. relief all of those things um but i call them right-sized prayers Mm. and right focused prayers um so anyway i'm very excited about this little book i'm praying for you i got to tell you the one really cool little thing about it too is so each day i have a scripture and i write about it a little bit and then i have a prayer in which you can insert that person's name in this prayer that's drawn out of that passage but then the really cool part is then there's a page that has a QR code. And you click on the QR code and then go, do copy and it loads the text on for you to send the person you're praying for. Oh my gosh. An email or text. So it might say like the first one is on John 93. And so okay. immediately you have in your text I'm praying John 93 t- for oh you today.
0: Boy. Wow. Asking
1: asking God that he would put his glory on display in mm-hmm. your life in the midst of your suffering. Simple, short, yes. simple, but the, you know, we ask people to pray for us or we tell people we're going to pray for them, but for some, you know, think about that. If somebody's suffering and they get a text from you every day or every few days, here's exactly what I'm praying for you right now. Yes. I mean, what a gift, right? Yes. To yes. be more specific. Right. So there's one thing, but you know, I would also say in general with people rather than simply say, I'm praying for you, just do it right then. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, there's very many people who will write on your social media or who will tell you, well, we're praying for you. There aren't as many people who will say, here, let's come over the corner. Let me just pray for you right now. Yes. And uh, that's that's a real gift. That's, that's a real friend. Mm-hmm. I, I think most of us, when it comes to suffering people, you know, when I do a Q and A on this, I always, you know, raise hand and they want to know. You know, I don't want to be the person who says the wrong thing.
0: Mm-hmm. None of us does, right? No, no.
1: And um, you know, so what do I need to not say or to say? And I have a few answers to that. Number one is, don't you? When we're so concerned about what we are going to say, we presume that something could be said to make this okay yeah wow and you know far better to come and to get in front of someone and say I don't know what to say it it, Mm -hmm. it's like it Mm -hmm. humbles you're you're humbled before their loss and you're not presuming that you've got any great wisdom or insight or that you're going to advise but that you're just you're just with them saying this is terrible like I don't understand this, you know, to, so don't presume you can say something that's going to fix it. Yeah. And also go into that situation, planning to listen more than you talk, you know, to, to say, Oh man, I, what, what was your mom like? Mm -hmm. What will you really miss about her? Are there certain time days of the week or times in the day you really miss your husband? Mm. That you feel really alone? Are there are there any things you do that help you to still feel close to him? Mm. You know, those kind of specific questions that anticipate the person is grieving. What we tend to do is just say, you know, how are you? Mm-hmm. And they feel the pressure to say I'm good like i'm getting better and very few people grieve in some kind of status, steady pathway getting better right and and just about the time people think oh she's probably better that's been you know several months that's just the time grief gets its it's worse at least it was for me i mean the worst time for me was probably 3 to 6 months and it's like it becomes so real and there is it's just overwhelming and that's the time about everybody thinks stops asking you about it and assumes or presumes you're better. So, you know, and so when you ask, how are you? They feel like, man, I have to give a report and, and really grieving people. They know nobody really wants to hear the negative report. Mm. They really want to hear I'm better. It's good. Mm. Because if that's not what you report, the conversation gets quickly awkward after that. And they Mm. don't know what to do or what to say. So I, I th- it's far better rather than ask for a report. How are you? Better is to ask them a question, kind of like I was saying. Um, I think a great question is, "What's your grief like these days?" Mm. And to understand that the grieving person, their greatest desire is that the person they loved will not be forgotten, mm. and and that they aren't the only person who might be missing that person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to a grieving widow to say, you know, every time I go to that barbecue place where Sam and I used to meet up, I just hardly even want to go in because I just, it makes me miss him so much. Um, You know, things like that. And and here's here's one reason people don't want to do that. They (sighs) think to themselves, I might make her cry Mm. and that would be terrible. Besides today, she doesn't look very sad and boy, I sure don't want to be the person who makes her sad. And that there's a misunderstanding in that it grief. I think of it as a, like a computer program that's always running in the background mm. Like, do you ever do this with your phone? You figure out it's been ages since you closed windows and you go, you know, (laughs) and you've got a thousand apps that have been running in the background the whole time, right? Sapping all of your battery life. Well, similarly, when you look at a grieving person, maybe they're smiling today, maybe they're happy. But there's a program running, always Mm -hmm. running in the background of of their grief. And so when you speak to them and maybe they shed tears, it's not that you made them cry. Mm -hmm. It's that actually you allowed them to bring that forward, Mm -hmm. allowed them to release Mm -hmm. some of the sadness that was there already. Mm -hmm. And you asked them about the one thing they Mm -hmm. want to talk about most.
0: I loved you said in that book, you, you talked about, and you just gave some examples of it using the name of the person who they've lost. And um, I, I never realized prior to reading that book, how much I avoided doing that. But I was nervous to say, you know, the name of the person who they had lost, whether it be a child or a parent or um, a, hus- a husband, because I was afraid, I don't know, it felt like untouchable. It felt yeah dishonoring. And I didn't, and it's uh, the opposite. I, I had, I, that was mind blowing for right. me. Right. That yeah. person is a person of
1: value. And it's so honoring to that person. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And, and it's just like a balm to the soul of the person who's grieving at loss because, because so many people are afraid to say that their name.
0: Yes. I think of, of friends who lost a baby and and saying her name to the mom when we were talking And she was in tears, obviously for multiple reasons. But it did feel even more um, important for our relationship that I wasn't just saying your baby, the baby, um, but acknowledging like you gave her a name. You gave her a name specifically. She's a real person. She's a real person. And she she continues to use that name. Continue. She. She isn't just didn't just disappear into an empty history. She is now a part of their family forever, and saying her name helps even me remember, oh yeah, they have three children, mm-hmm. you know, at, and even though we don't see the three children all the time, like I, I can use her name. And that was just profound to me. It's, I'd like to grow in that still. Cause I, I noticed in me a hesitation even today to, to do that yeah. with people I talk to. Can you tell me about the respite retreats that you guys do yeah. and what that looks like? Yeah. In
1: 2009, David and I Uh, we'd, you know, I'd been writing about our experience and I, you know, would hear from a lot of grieving parents, especially grieving moms who would write to me or talk to me places where I was speaking. And then one time this um, couple came through town, husband and wife, and they wanted to have dinner with the two of us. And at that dinner, David and I just saw and experienced that there's a unique kind of helping and experience of a mom and dad together with another mom and dad, not just mom Mm. with mom or dad with dad. And driving home from that dinner, I said, do you think maybe we could start a retreat just for couples who've lost children? Mm. And by the time we got home, I had the whole thing mapped out. (laughs) And a few days later, I sent an email to everyone who had written me who had lost a child in the previous two years. And within two weeks, the first one filled up. Wow. And we did another one. And another one. And we've now done 40 of these. Wow. So David and I have spent the weekend with over 900 grieving parents. And um, it's the sweetest thing, Andrea. You know, when we tell people about it, you know, some people are just like, let's see, go away for a weekend with, you know, 11 or 12 sets of strangers (laughs) who are all incredibly sad and broken. (laughs) that does not sound like fun, Um, but it provides such a refuge and relief to these couples. I mean, to, to be in a social situation that everybody gets it. Nobody's walking on eggshells. Mm -hmm. Everybody understands, you know, you can talk about the grave and autopsies Mm -hmm. and headstones and, you know, Mm -hmm. all these things, because everybody's there and it's such a relief to them. And, um, you know, we open up the scriptures and we look at uh, God's sovereignty over mm-hmm. these things. And we talk about very practical aspects, like, you know, what are you going to do with your child's bedroom and belongings? And mm-hmm. what are you going to do on holidays and birthdays and death days? And and so anyway, yeah, so we've done 40 of those since 2009. And actually, I'll, I'll tell you a secret. It's not public no. yet. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be public by the time of April. So we've been offer the, offering these in Nashville now for you know, almost 12 years and we're expanding and we're going to begin offering, are you ready for this? Yeah. Respite retreat at the beach. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This hilarious. this couple who has come to our retreat, who stayed in contact with, we've been kind of mentoring them for them to be able to mm. offer a respite retreat at the beach. And we're hoping to get another one uh, going in. That'll be in um, in Gulf Shores, Alabama. And we're hoping oh. to get another one in Texas yeah. going okay. later this year. So. Anyway. Yeah. If, if, if someone's listening to this and you've lost a child, or if you know someone who has, just go to nancyguthrie.com and click on respite retreats and you'll see the information about what other, whatever retreats we're currently offering.
0: Okay, great. I'll put that in the show notes too, for easily great. clickable. Thanks. Can I ask you a theology question in oh regards gosh. to all of this? Are you sure? <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. Um, this is a question that came in when I mentioned we were talking about, well, that I was talking to you and that I was talking about children dying do you have any thoughts about salvation and children and what do you do when you don't have a good answer for that with your own children that you've lost? Yeah.
1: In regard to salvation for anybody, we rely on the character of God, not on what we see in a person or what we don't see. And so, you know, this also applies like when someone has taken their own life or when, you know, someone you don't know if that grown person was a believer. Um, I think there's, there's three things I would say that we can lean into. Number one, we lean into the fact that God is a God of salvation and that he loves to save. Mm -hmm. You know, some, I heard someone say one time, might've been Edmund Clowney, that, you know, in the middle of the Bible is this book, Jonah. And in the middle of the book of Jonah is this statement, uh, salvation belongs to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And it's like this center point, you know, of the whole of the book. And I love that. And so, you know, salvation doesn't belong to me. It doesn't, even though I've received it, mm-hmm. salvation belongs to the Lord mm-hmm. and he saves as he sees fit. He ex- and so there's one thing, one like hard, firm thing to hold on to, you know, uh, another thing is think about the way God introduced himself. The very time He first time he told anything about his personal nature, mm-hmm. it would be when he revealed himself to Moses. Mm-hmm. And what did he say about himself? What's, what's the most important thing he wanted them to know? I am a God who is abundant in mercy, slow to anger, abundant, super abounding, like more mercy than you can imagine, more than you would think to put on your card, right? For this is too much. And So he's a God. He's the God of salvation. He is a God of mercy, right? Mm -hmm. Then the, the third thing, there's a rhetorical question in Genesis 18, 25. It's in that interaction between Abraham and God, when God is going to come and judge the city of Sodom and they're going back and forth, you know, will you not save it for one or whatever? Mm -hmm. And at one point, God, uh, he he says to, to Abraham, it, and it's kind of, it's a rhetorical question, hmm. but the question is, will not the God of the earth do what is right? Hmm. And yeah. I have to answer it. It might be rhetorical, but I have to answer <laughs> it. And I say, yes, yes, he will. So, um, you know, we don't, we don't look in that person's life. For, for something, you know, it it's wonderful when someone leaves this life and you've been able to see genuine spiritual fruit. So nobody has to agonize over this or wonder. But the question isn't, is there a little fruit, but is there zero fruit, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose you're also asking in, in terms of infants, you know, I actually think, I think some people, would say the Bible answers this question clearly. Honestly, I, I'm not sure it does. I'm not sure it does. So what do I rest on? He loves to say, Mm. and the God of the earth will do what is right. Mm. And so the big question becomes, can I trust him with that? Yeah. And I can, um, you know and then the, there's one other thing I, I wish i had the reference handy but there's a, there's one point in the gospels where jesus speaks of of someone who um didn't have the opportunity to repent boy i wish i had it because that's not very clear it's mm-hmm. in a footnote actually if you've got that book okay. um what I will, grieving people I wish will you find to it. Do. I've got a footnote all (laughs) about that. And it has a a reference, another one. But there's the sense in which um, a person not being held responsible Mm. for when they have not, that they don't have the capacity even Mm. to understand and receive the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so I think that helps us, whether it's an Mm -hmm. infant or, you know, someone with a disability Mm -hmm. or mental illness that you know, God is good.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He's good. In him, there's no darkness at all. Yeah, And he loves to save. And so we'll just rely
0: on who he is. Oh, I love that. Cause I think we need that reminder always in all su- situations of suffering in our circumstances. I know I do to, to remember the, the nature and character of God before I start to filter any of my experiences, but to lean on those first. Um, is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with today before we go? Hmm.
1: Well, I think all I, uh, the only thing I want to leave them with is that um, death is not a tragedy. You know, there, there are so many situations that someone looks at and they go, Oh, that's, A tragedy. Death itself is not a tragedy. Death outside of Christ Mm. is a tragedy. To die outside of Christ Mm. is a tragedy. Death in Christ. Means that we get to enter into the presence of Christ. Mm-hmm. This is why Paul, you know, what does he, the Bible doesn't tell us all that much about immediately what happens after we die. Mm-hmm. It tells us a few things, you know, it tells us that we are away from the body, at home with the Lord. Wow, what a beautiful thing mm-hmm. to go to Him. Mm-hmm. That is not a tragedy. It feels like a tragedy if you've lost that person. It feels like that on this side of things, but I guess it's that's another example of how we have to tell ourselves the truth. Mm-hmm. We have to say, okay, this is not a tragedy, and you know, going back to Hope and Gabe, I remember my husband David. He would he would often talk about it in terms of a perspective of actually we're getting the opportunity Mm. to usher our children into the presence of god Mm. and um escape from this world Mm. and you know there's many aspects of this life that are difficult and and painful that they never had to experience and they're just they're just a little more quickly than he and i and their brother matt entering into the presence of God. Mm. And that is
0: not a tragedy. Mm. That's beautiful. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing and all of your wisdom. And I'm so thankful for your voice in these matters, but everything you do for the church these days and what the Lord has worked in you, um, by his grace is beautiful. And, um, well, I'm really looking forward you.
1: to being there in Rochester, Lord willing. No, we We're learning to we say that about you. every plan, aren't we? <laughs> yes, yes. Lord willing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll be here in, I think, in September when the weather is beautiful. Yeah, work that out, would you? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying right now. No, We okay. don't have to worry about any heaters or anything like that. Okay, Actually, gorgeous, So. <laughs> Well, thank you, Nancy, for joining me today. And anyone who wants to learn more about Nancy can go to the show notes and I'll have all that in there. So thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Good Enough. For more information about today's episode, check out the show notes where I try to post links to my guests' information, any books we discuss, any podcasts we reference, and so much more. As always, if you need to reach me, you can email Andrea at GraceRoadChurch.org. Good Enough is a resource of Grace Road Church in Rochester, New York, and I'm so happy to serve you through this podcast. Keep listening, leave a comment or a review, let me know you were here, and say hi. I think that was Good Enough.